Welcome to the Commentary Magazine podcast. Today is Friday, April 9th, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. Noah Rothman is off today, producing and in her uh, daily role as senior writer of Commentary Magazine, we have Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Um, I want to uh, send a shout out to our friend Ben Shapiro, who was, of course, the last uh, commentary roasty every year. Commentary Magazine has a roast of a of a notable figure, uh, friend of the magazine. Uh, Charles Krauthammer is one of our roasties. Bill Crystal, will, Jonah Goldberg, Roger Hertog, Dick Cheney, uh, and uh, a couple of other people, including uh, my father, the first roasty, Norman Podhortz. And we are yes going to have another roast in November. I think the date is November 21st, so don't hold me to that. We will be meeting in person at the Plaza Hotel in New York for a roast. And people who have come, please prepare your checkbooks, buy tables, do everything you can. We, I'm sure, are going to be together in person in the community, the commentary community, for this really vivid, great event. Well, the last roastee was Ben Shapiro. And Ben Shapiro, of course, does a daily podcast and 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 YouTube show and I listened to it this morning, uh, and he really, he, he did a tour de force. It is a tour de force performance talking about what has been going on in the Derek Chauvin trial in Minneapolis. Ben, a graduate of the Harvard Law School, so uh, just so people understand, I know, oh, Ben Shapiro. I mean, he was, a, he was like a prodigy graduate of the Harvard Law School. I, I can't remember what age, 23, something like that. And, uh, and he knows his stuff, and he knows his legal stuff, and he points out very plainly that in a criminal trial, everybody know this from watching Law & Order, what you need to prove uh, to what you don't need, it is, it is the prosecution that needs to prove beyond a reasonable doubt the charge uh, that has been laid out against a defendant. Uh, and reasonable doubt is a, reason, is, a, is a pretty high standard. Now, if you have a bullet that goes through somebody's body and somebody is holding a gun and the and and has this fingerprints were on the gun and the bullet you know the 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 nozzle of the gun shows that you know the bullet came through the gun the gun enters the person's body and they're dead on the floor um it's very hard to introduce a note of reasonable doubt you then have to go to motive was it murder was it not murder whatever what has been going on apparently in this trial and as ben says is getting insufficient coverage uh, by the mainstream media, though you can tell it if you read between the lines, is that the prosecution is staging its case. The prosecution goes first, and the defense team is cross-examining, and the cross-examination is going startlingly well. If if he is to be believed, and if what, what the case that he was making, uh, that Ben was making, is is correct, and he there's he uses audio, he uses video. There's all sorts of stuff going on. And basically introducing notes of reasonable doubt at every stage of the process, talking about what happened to George Floyd uh, from the time that he was arrested in this, you know, Mercedes uh, SUV or uh, sitting next to a his drug dealer who is not only refusing to testify, uh, he's refusing to testify because he is not being granted a writ of immunity by the prosecution from whatever it was that he was going to testify to. And Ben reasonably says, why on earth wouldn't the prosecution grant him this writ of immunity? Could it be because what the drug dealer has to say 
sitting in the car next to him uh, will be injurious to the case that they are attempting to prove that Derek Chauvin was guilty of murder. So they don't want him to testify. They are putting roadblocks in the way of testifying. The defense wants him to testify. So that's now that's not reasonable doubt. It just gives you a sense of what may be going on in the mindset of the prosecution. But in these cases, and we can sort of go through them systematically, but basically, uh, did George Floyd die uh, because he was asphyxiated or got asphyxia directly because of the physical position that he was put in and held in by by Derek Chauvin uh, with the other cops standing around? And uh, the answer is not as is way more ambiguous apparently than you would be led to believe watching the videotape that of course went around the world and caused 25 million people to demonstrate and 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 and, and hundreds of thousands to riot and all of that uh, last uh summer so uh we can again go through this i i highly commend to you yesterday's ben shapiro podcast or go to youtube and watch it because he lays out this case systematically and i'm not going to do that here i think we just want to talk more broadly about two things one is what does it mean that this case isn't as strong as one might have expected it would be and two what does it mean that we may not be getting the information that is necessary to make an informed, have an informed understanding of what is going on in that courtroom, given the likelihood, the possibility to likelihood of immense social upheaval should the verdict come down in a way that will upset the crowds that gathered last summer. So uh, let's start with the first um christine what do you make of this first week or whatever it is um it's been interesting i would also for people who also want more uh sort of more granular detail about what's happening day by day in the trial they should also check out the legal insurrection blog which has got someone there following it they have you know snippets from some of the video testimony and it if you want to follow in detail sort of the the day-to-day actions of you know who's testifying and how it went it, it has a good perspective um I think one one the big problem here is that there's a vast difference between what that video showed and what the law requires as proof. And so uh, many, many Americans, you might even probably correctly estimate most Americans saw that video and convicted Chauvin in their minds, right? It's not the same thing as what a jury is being asked to do with regard to evidence and uh, the guidance of the law in a courtroom. And I think the narrative, the sort of media narrative has been clear all along. And anyone who raised questions about the details of the arrest, the, you know, things about, uh, you know, George Floyd's health, uh, he'd had COVID, he had other comorbidities, he had a lot of drugs in his system at the time of his arrest. If you watch the body cam video of the officers who arrested him, as as many of us did, you can see that there was, you know, that there was a struggle for, for more than 10 minutes. He was claiming he couldn't breathe when he was in the back of the co- police car and then asked to, he himself asked to be taken out, said he was claustrophobic there. There was a lot of chaos that was going on for a very long time before the video that the world saw started. 
Um, and that's why actually both body cam footage that cops use to try to try to uh, uh, argue their own side and, and the citizen video that shows that all cops are evil are, should both be taken with a grain of salt when they start to become viral because they never show the whole story. So what a trial is meant to do is show much more of the story. And this is why when, when Chauvin was first charged, a lot of us were watching very closely which charges he would w- would be put to him. And there is a very real possibility that he will not, that there is enough reasonable doubt that he won't be convicted of murder. Now, excessive use of force, yes. He, I mean, manslaughter, definitely. I mean, you can, there are lots of terrible things that, that there's terrible things that he did as a, a, a law enforcement officer that he shouldn't have that, that are, make him complicit in the death. But the context also matters. And I think, I, I fear that because uh, activists have spent the last, you know, year saying, if he gets off in any way, shape or form, we're going to burn down this country and you better make sure he goes straight to jail. We have celebrities like uh, uh, Chelsea Handler saying, why do we even have to have a trial? I mean, that attitude is very bad. And I and I encourage every American, regardless of what you think should happen to Chauvin, to pay attention to the evidence, not because pe- racists are trying to you know make it exculpatory, but because this is how the process is supposed to work. And Ma- Americans should support the process and not cave in to either the media narrative or to the kind of activist um, hostage taking of the American public that's been going on for, for since the trial began. You know, it's not just by the way that he might have been overcharged, but that the judge in the case um, allowed uh, one of the charges to be heightened I mean, I can't remember what you would call it to go from third to second degree, but like let let one of the charges step up in 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 intensity from from the original indictment. How that works, I don't know, because unlike Ben Shapiro, I didn't go to law school and I don't work in criminal procedure. But there 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 it is. So you not only had this happen in the course of the pursuit of the. Uh, charging of 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 Derek Chauvin, but it apparently happened in the courtroom it, itself. Uh, that that ironically, and this would be the horrible irony here, uh, has made the prosecution's case vastly more difficult than it might otherwise have been. Uh, Chelsea Handler may have done us a a favor in some weird way. Uh, because she's voicing something that is probably a more common. I mean, Chelsea Handler's an idiot, and she's an unfunny comedian, and has had terrible talk shows, and like is somebody who nobody should listen to. I mean, she is really, really a deeply unimpressive person. But by saying what she said, which is why do we even have a trial? She implicitly makes it clear why it is that you need to have a trial. You actually, uh, this is eight years of eight centuries. Excuse me of common law being justified by the fact that when you have high profile cases that enrage and, and, and inflame a community, uh, you need to have procedures that make sure that people aren't railroaded, lynched. And otherwise it is, it is in these cases that the need for innocent until proven guilty, reasonable doubt, reasonable man standard men's ray, all of these terms that involve what goes on in the commission of a crime or whether a crime was committed, that they exist not because we need them for the cases where things are unambiguous, but because we need them to protect people against the mob. We need to be in a position in which people are protected from the passions, furies, and irrationalities of the mob. And that's what 
the process that is what the people who say things like he better be found guilty are being they are being the mob they are being the they are they are the downside of society uh you know collective thinking uh you know sort of uh the passions being engaged on matters that involve things that are so serious like the the you know the lives of people the conduct of police all of that that we need to be protected from chelsea handler chelsea handler doesn't need to be protected from derek chauvin and um coming from the left um the suggestion that someone should be prosecuted without trial is as injurious to our system and our way of life as suggesting that our elections are a hoax by the way um this is a fundamental bedrock principle of uh the 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 the, the western legal system let alone the the american uh, uh system the idea that um we don't need trials when we all think that someone is guilty um this is as i don't i don't you can't you forfeit your right to talk about blowing up norms and threats to democracy um when you uh offer um analyses such as those well to say nothing of it it, it completely overlooks the the history of a justice system when it is perverted for the mob's ends particularly if that mob is a bunch of racist white southerners in previous eras who were happy to dispense with justice sure. and simply you know go after the guy who someone said did this thing like that is exactly what the system has has we we've, we've had we know what that leads to and to to argue that you know because of the injustice of of what happened to George Floyd we should you know go to the other extreme and and do this whenever whenever a cop has has done something wrong is is the same principle and it's just it got a different target it's very damaging well look it, we live in a time and i would say i the first time that i really noticed this happening was during the um uh in horrible uh and incredibly unjust uh, prosecutions of uh, child care workers and daycare workers in the 1980s on these demented charges of satanic uh, ritual sexual abuse and all that, which is you would say, hey, you know, this doesn't quite pass the smell test for me. Or like maybe we need to wait and like have this, you know, whatever process go through. And then what you are told is, why don't you believe the children? Well, aside from the fact that one shouldn't believe children, particularly four-year-old children, I mean, not that you can't believe them, but they're not, tr- truth-telling is not foremost in their consciousness. One of my kids thought he was a vacuum for about six months. Right, when he was yeah. Four. So, so yeah, exactly, you, would, you would yeah. take it with a great assault. <laughs> yeah, so why won't we believe the children, which gets to a lot of other things we don't even need to talk about, including gender dysphoria and other things. Um, move forward to like Me Too or Christine Blasey Ford or whatever, which is this we need to believe the accuser we must believe the accuser and again this is centuries if not millennia of social evidence that the last thing that you can do if you want a well-ordered society is believe an accusation simply because the accusation has been rendered i mean i've said this before on the podcast but the first crime aside from you know the murder of uh, Abel in the Bible, the first crime in all of Western civilization is a false accusation of sexual uh, of rape in the Bible. It's Joseph being accused of raping Potiphar's wife. That is a false accusation. It is a foundational fact of Western civilization 
Now, you can say that's because we're patriarchal and maybe he really did rape Potiphar's wife or whatever the hell you want to say. But the whole point here is that there is a, and in the 20th century, we have versions of Potiphar's wife all over the place, you know, that, that Christine is even sort of alluding to, which are like these false accusations that black men in the South raped white women that led to, you know, uh, lynchings and stuff like that, or 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 the plot of... um. The plot of To Kill a Mockingbird, which is exactly this. Well, however, that's a novel, so I don't want to use that. But I'm just saying we don't believe the accuser because that way lies a society in which, as we are living through right now, to some degree, in woke culture and all this, that is a society in which all you need to do to shift the power balance in your favor or to get all, or to, or to, or to, or to uh, succeed at things and destroy other people whom you want to destroy is simply to say that they did something uh, and they have no recourse to defend themselves. And it's it one of the things about with the George Floyd uh, case in particular that's maddening is that we should, and I've, I've said before, I've sat on many juries. If you live in D.C. and you don't have a criminal conviction pending, you basically are called for jury service every two years. In fact, I just got a summons um, for my service. I had just served about two years ago. So I've sat on many criminal trials in D.C. And the evidence is is complicates a lot of the narrative that, that both the prosecution and the defense want to want to promote. But if you're a member of the jury, you should want to hear this. And, and as members of the public, because this is such a, such a uh, very public uh, spectacle of a trial, more information is better. But I think we've lost, uh, to your point, John, I think we've lost the ability to, to look at critically at all of the evidence because to do so is to, in, in this day and age, implicitly side with the defense in this case. So if you say, for example, look, you know, uh, George Floyd had a lot of comorbidities. He had a lot of drugs in his system. Um, there are a lot of questions we should ask about whether the use of force in this case um, was was truly an attempt to murder him or was a combination of a lot of really bad circumstances and bad police work that led to his death. Those are two different things. And we're asked actually as in the public narrative not to even look at that. So, I mean, I've had conversations with people and I've seen online and in media reports, anyone who pushes back is a racist, right? Because how dare you ask about the victim in this case? Well, you have to ask about the victim in a case if you want to prove the the, the murder charges that they're, that they're charging Chauvin for. And I think... It, it, it's very frustrating to not to, to try to silence people who want to ask those questions because it doesn't come from a position of racism. It comes from this is how the system's supposed to work. We've got to look at all these things. Just like if someone accuses someone of a serious crime, you can have empathy for how they are experiencing that. You can listen, and but you must prove that what they're saying is true. And we've lost in some ways, certainly in the cultural narrative, the ability to do that without turning on each other like a feral mob and attacking someone as racist or sexist or, or whatnot. Okay, if I want to turn to this question that Ben, ben raises about the media uh, covering this in a way, because basically people, they themselves don't want to get yelled at on social media about how maybe they're saying things that people don't want to hear. You know, they don't want to, the messenger doesn't want to be killed. They're covering the trial and they're basically... Uh, tilting the coverage of the trial toward the notion that the prosecution's case is being made. I want to read you one passage from the New York Times coverage of the testimony of a pulmonologist named Dr. Martin Tobin, who specializes in the mechanics of breathing. 
Uh, he says it's, it was fatal injury to the brain from a lack of oxygen that killed, that killed George Floyd. And that, uh, by, uh, that uh, Chauvin and other police officers had restricted Mr. Floyd's breathing by flattening his rib cage against the pavement and pushing his cuffed hands into his torso. And by the placement of Mr. Chauvin's knees on his neck and back, he says he can pinpoint the moment. He said Mr. Floyd had shown signs of a brain injury four minutes before Mr. Chauvin lifted his knee from his body. This is obviously on the, on the video. Um, so here, there are two passages I want to read from the story. Quote, after two days of sometimes tedious law enforcement testimony on procedures and policies, jurors appear to be riveted by Mr. Tobin's ability to break down complex physiological concepts, at times scribbling notes in unison. Now, this was the tedious law enforcement testimony, where it's being called tedious, where there was an actual disagree. One guy in law enforcement first said that George Floyd had said, I ate too many drugs. And then the next, and then they took a break and he came back and he said, he might have said, I ain't eaten no drugs. Would that be tedious to you that that's like straight out of law and order right that a guy comes on and contradicts himself into so and he's a prosecution witness not a defense witness so (laughs) it was tedious prior previously perhaps because it wasn't going the way that the reporter here sheila dewan wanted it to go and he says and she says he delivered his opinions without a shred of ambivalence noting that his conclusions were based on, quote, very precise scientific knowledge, like the level of oxygen when somebody loses consciousness. So he didn't have a shred of ambivalence. So, of course, he's right, because he didn't have a shred of ambivalence. One witness, and then quotes a former chief public defender of Hennepin County. I don't think I've seen an expert witness as effective of this. This is the former chief public defender of Hennepin County, which is where Minneapolis is. Uh... Oh really? Okay, so a def- so someone who was part of the defense bar says, "Oh, this is this is fantastic," you know, like that. Okay, so that's thing number one, and then and then quote number two from this New York Times story, or another thing. Doctor Tobin was born in rural Ireland, went to medical school in Dublin, and spoke with a soft Irish lilt. So he's charming, like a leprechaun. He's like Aiden. He's like uh, you know. Colin Farrell, he's a beautiful Irish accent you can really enjoy uh, listening to. And then comes this. Mr. Nelson, that's the defense lawyer, pushed back, continuing to press his argument that Mr. Floyd's death might have been an overdose. He asked if Mr. Floyd's breathing may have been inhibited if he had taken fentanyl in the moments before police officers brought him to the ground. Floyd had, by the way, enormous amounts of fentanyl in his system, according to the autopsy three times like a dose that, you know, could kill anybody. Dr. Tobin agreed that it could have been, but said that Mr. Floyd had never gone into coma as he would have done if he were overdosing. Okay. So, um, here's what I, I now read this paragraph to say that this entire story, uh, is untrustworthy. Nelson got (coughs) Tobin to agree that fentanyl could have inhibited Floyd's breathing and thus contributed to his asphyxia. For all we know, we weren't in the courtroom. For all we know, that was devastating. 
sounds you could write this story with that as the lead. Pulmonologist agrees that fentanyl might have led to constricted breathing in the moments before Floyd went unconscious. So this is the New York Times' coverage. Um, it's funny because when you were, the first part of what you were reading made me think that this was sort of analogous to, so the pulmonologist is Fauci and we're supposed to trust the science. <laughs> not, not the, uh, you know, not, 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 not the data. Forget the fact that the, that the guy said, uh, I, I ate a lot of drugs. No, I didn't eat drugs. Um, trust, trust, trust the charming, the charming scientist with the, uh, who, with, with the, with the, with the advanced degrees and, and, the, and the model. Um, yeah. but yeah, of course I totally agree with you. And, and so the, the, the problem is, um, what are they preparing? What is the times preparing its readership and what are the various networks preparing their viewers for when they, this is the way they are framing the case? All of this is the, um, scary prospect that, that they are laying the groundwork for um, a horrible shock should things go the other way. And exactly. It's been the case since the start. This was true, by the way, of what happened in the, um, the George Zimmerman Trayvon Martin case, which is that the surprising fact that the case against George Zimmerman was lousy based on, based on existing Florida law came as a total shock to everybody. And in 2015, the fact that the Justice Department investigation into the Michael Brown case that was designed to find, that was, that was initiated in order to ensure or seek a, a better or more hostile result to, um, to, the, to the cop in Ferguson, Missouri, came out the other way. Because the media set it up as though there is no question. And as I say, I don't know. For all I know, this is true. Tobin made the prosecution's case and Chauvin is going to be convicted. Or Tobin made the defense's case and Chauvin is going to be acquitted. The New York Times cast this story with a 90% you know, hand on the scale of justice toward the prosecution. And all I'm saying is we cannot trust what we are being told. And that is a huge problem. And the, the Ferguson, Missouri uh, case, I'm glad you brought that up because that is a, the big lie that continues. And it's not just the media that promotes it. Elizabeth Warren over the summer was like tweeting out a remembrance about, oh, this unarmed black man killed by police that, you know, hands up, don't breathe continues to be something that people embrace as having been true when it's been proven over and over again. And not by Republicans, by Obama's Justice Department to have all been a lie. And it was a justifiable, justifiable police uh, shooting and it doesn't make it less of a tragedy right this is one of the things that gets lost when we have to when, when the when the way of talking about these things becomes so polarizing is that it's not as if anyone's arguing that that this is anything less than a tragedy but in order to put someone away for these charges of murder you have to make the case and a jury that has even a shred of reasonable doubt about that case should not convict so again i go i keep going back to the what he was charged with and and how even that process was highly politicized really influenced by the media there was there was again a kind of you better make sure these charges are tough and when they weren't tough enough there were complaints that were very publicly made by activists and you know the judge caved so i think really people should read if they're interested in justice in this case read the day-by-day trial watch the testimony it's available to you online make 
you know, your own decisions. Don't be swayed by what you're expected to believe before all the evidence is in. That's how our system is supposed to work. I'm just, you know, it's just this, all this makes me think everything from the Chelsea Handler point to the, to the, the times coverage of the, of the trial. Um, this is the, this all shows this overarching problem of this huge idea uh, among liberals and activists that sort of poetic truth is equal to truth, right? Um, you know, if, uh, yeah, the, yeah, the U S was founded in 1619. Well, not, not really, but might as well be it, it there are there are sort of poetic reasons to feel that way um and uh, there's a billion examples like this and the 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 real danger in that is that when you get down to a nuts and bolts situation like this like a like a legal trial in which the country is, is attention hangs um you abs- you you forget that poetic truth is not what is at, at stake here it's real truth and if you um sort of prepare people and sort of, you know train them to think in terms of poetic truths. Um, not, the world is not going to make sense to them, and it's going to look wildly unjust. And um, the disconnect between your sense of truth and what actual truth is and has always been, um, th- that that w- what happens in that chasm is going to be very dangerous. Right. Um, so, guys, uh, we got, you know, interesting economic news in the last couple of days, uh, Job, job, jobless claims, went up after a fantastic jobs report just uh you know uh, a little while ago i what does this mean uh hard to understand uh, unemployment rate uh going way down but jobless claims going way up does this mean that the vaccinate that things are slowing down even though it looks like the economy is ratcheting up what what's happening i need to turn to our friends at the bonson group to understand some of these sorts of macroeconomic Numbers, the Bonson Group, bi-coastal management firm, $2.8 billion under management, two internet products, the dctoday.com and dividendcafe.com, the weekly, DC Today, obviously a daily product. David Bonson has an unparalleled ability to combine uh, hard data with uh, analysis of uh, financial markets, government policies, and uh, a, a really strong sense of uh, of what history has to teach us about how the economy works and the interplay of all these forces. Um, so I will be turning uh, to him today to understand this, both in the dctoday.com and dividendcafe.com. Um, and so should you, and so should you consider the Bonson Group. If you need someone to help manage your finances, that's the Bonson Group, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial management and services industry. Uh, so we are running uh, short on time. Uh, Abe, you had an interesting point you wanted to make uh, that you had come up with with a friend of yours last night about um, Biden and the left and uh, one of the advantages that Biden seems to have, even though we spent yesterday talking about whether or not there was a sort of chronic overreach uh, in Biden's uh, sort of moves to the left. So as we've been saying, um, you know, the the interesting thing about Biden is that he ran successfully um, uh, the, the campaign by, in large part, sort of ignoring the activist left, ignoring the the, the Twitter left, um, and managing to sort of thread this needle, uh, uh, kind of just go down this, you know, um, this this lane that appears appeared to be kind of pragmatic and centrist. 
um, or or something, or just you know, just sort of um, uh, uh, not not declaring himself one way or other on the on the on the more radical issues. Um, and and now, of course, um, as he's been um, governing everything from his executive decisions to the to the to the um, to the to the pandemic relief plans to the to the to the um, supposed infrastructure plans and so on. Um, he is he is effectively um, governing as this um, very kind of aggressive uh, uh, left wing administration. Um, it occurs to me that because he ran successfully by ignoring the the activist left by being a kind of alternative to um the squad so he 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 appealed to people who were you know democrats who would say you know look i don't i don't love the squad i'm i think uh, there's a, there's some uh, uh distasteful things going on in the name of black lives matter um uh so i i you know I, i'll i'll vote for biden because he seems reasonable um i get the sense from talking to them and from from sort of reading them um that that impression will carry them through the Biden presidency at least for a while no matter what he does they will continue to um be invested in that cover story of Biden uh and sort of never quite recognize that what's going on here is something more radical it's not unlike um uh, Obama, who who forever, no matter what he did, would be defended as a, a pragmatist by by those who who liked him. Well, and for whom uh, for whom every uh, everyone in his coalition and, and and the voters who put him in office twice were entirely credulous about his clearly spurious claims that he was uh, really seeking bipartisanship. Biden's running that playbook as well. And everybody's saying, you know, oh, my goodness, these Republicans are terrible, obstructing this amazing agenda of his. But I will push uh, on one thing I will say he might overstep and this fiction might not be allowed to continue. And that's the, the constant Jim Crow stuff. He's done the, the Jim Crow overkill. And, you know, if he continues to embrace the kind of rhetoric on race, that a lot of Americans are not comfortable not not comfortable hearing because they're victims of white fragility, as Robin DeAngelo would call us, but because it's divisive and it's exactly the opposite of the message he ran on. So I think he he's going to have to be careful. And I, you can see his people, particularly Ron Klain and Jen Psaki, really trying to massage these outbursts that he has when he's kind of released uh, to the public for a few minutes to talk about those things. Look, I'll say one thing about sort of like the moderate Democrats that we're talking about, as opposed to moderate Republicans who were driven, who were who were turned off and driven away from the party uh, by Trump and by some of the others in the Trump coalition, that um, it's one thing like for uh, certain types of people that I know to say, oh, my God, I can't even be in the same party with Louis Gohmert or uh, Mo Brooks or obviously uh, what's it Roy Moore then uh, not to mention Trump right and and I am not them they have nothing to do with me they sicken me they disgust me now Matt Gates is apparently in that category Adam Kinzinger the 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 sort of the now the voice of sort of like non-Trump or anti-Trump Republicanism in the House has called for Matt Gates to resign I cannot stomach being anywhere considered part of a coalition with those people, or even if I can, I, I wish this weren't the case, right? Now, I just don't think that moderate Democrats have those same feelings about AOC, Elizabeth Warren, and Bernie Sanders. They don't like them. They think they're too extreme. They want to do things and all this. But 
Probably they think their heart is in the right place. Probably they think, oh, you know, she taught at Harvard. Uh, AOC is so impressive. She really uh, rallies young people. Bernie Sanders is so authentic. Like they don't have that. Um, they, that is not where they are. Some Jews have it with Ilhan Omar and, uh, and, and people supporters of Israel have it with Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and should have it with more people, Ayanna Presley, but they don't necessarily, uh, you know, in aggregate. And so that is one area in which Biden profits because, um, there, there aren't forces within the Democratic Party that are nauseating people who might themselves run away they're, they they just don't have that feeling right and it's an excellent point instead of thinking that they're you know um uh, reprehensible they think that they're like, too idealistic right exactly they're too yeah they're they're, they're unre- you know they they their hearts in the right place yeah. but i mean that's not the way the world works exactly. but listen the one of the ways the world works is that you got people collecting and harvesting and selling your data online because you don't anonymize your data and if you want to do that so that you who you are is your own business. Go to ExpressVPN to avoid those hundreds of brodedakers, uh, data, data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data. That means your IP address. ExpressVPN, if you go there, you can it reroutes your connection through an encrypted server and your IP address is masked. Every time you turn it on, you're given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers, and it's so much harder to harvest your data. And it's so easy to use no matter what device you're on, phone, laptop, smart TV. All you have to do is tap one button, ExpressVPN, to get protected. So go save yourself, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash commentary. Get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash commentary. Go to expressvpn.com commentary to learn more. Uh, I got to run. Uh, I hope everybody has a wonderful weekend. Noah will be back with us on Monday. So for Christine and Abe, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.